This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Let me just set the stage also for those just joining us that the reason we're not seeing anything as we did in the state court in New York, in Manhattan, is that this is a federal court. There are no cameras. Uh, we do have a courtroom artist there. We will be seeing those sketches later, as we always see from the Supreme Court and other federal courthouses. Oh, baby, oh, baby. It's indictment day. We are <laughs> watching here as Donald Trump makes his way to Miami this time. We already had one indictment day for Donald Trump, and we all gathered around the televisions and understood that this is the first time in history that a person who had been president was being arraigned on a crime. We are at a turning point in our nation's history. The targeting prosecution of a leading political opponent is the type of thing you see in dictatorships like Cuba and Venezuela. Just like he's the President so nice, he was impeached twice. He is now arraigned and indicted twice, this time on federal charges. So here's the questions. When is this going to try? Assigned to this case, Eileen Cannon sits in Fort Pierce. It's the farthest north in our district. It's 130 miles north of Miami. It's a very small courthouse. Who is the judge and why is it a very good sign for Donald Trump? And then... The biggest. What happens if and when this stuff doesn't really play that big of a role in the primaries after all? What if he beats everything? I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent person. In slightly less pressing news, Vivek Ramaswamy almost gave me a heart attack. Many of you remember that a few weeks ago, I guess it was in May, myself, Evan Scrimshaw, did a failed candidate fantasy draft where we are hoping that we get to the lowest number of days for a team of three candidates. This man picked Vivek Ramaswamy. And this morning, Vivek Ramaswamy calls a press conference, a press conference that quickly gets some buzz around it. That brings me to my second announcement that I'm going to make today. That maybe Vivek Ramaswamy is going to drop out and endorse Trump. Maybe he's also got his eyes on another office. We answer that and more. For Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is politics, 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 and I'm Justin Robert Young. Let's go ahead and start with Vivek. All right. Uh, uh, Last week, I'm writing again. So if you have not gotten on my Substack free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com, I would recommend that you do. You don't have to pay to subscribe to it. Uh, but if you do, then, you know, there are some times that I, I've just got random little notes, random little ideas, uh, and I've been putting them out there on the Substack. But 
I wrote a full column. It was about the idea of the silver surfer candidate. Very nerdy, right? This is a, a metaphor to the Marvel Comics character, the silver surfer. But more specifically to the idea that the silver surfer is the herald to Galactus. If you're not this level of nerd, let me spell it out here for you. Galactus is a gigantic dude that wanders through space and eats planets. And so the Silver Surfer carves his way through space, finding planets for Galactus to eat. If you see the Silver Surfer, you understand that Galactus is coming. Now, eventually, the Silver Surfer becomes a good guy, blah, 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 blah. But for this particular metaphor, what we are looking at are candidates that know they're not going to win in a presidential primary. But they know that there is a lot of benefit to doing the dirty work of the person they believe is going to win. And this is a very, very, very real phenomenon. You can trade a little paint with the front runner. You can disagree with them. You can push them but it usually helps to push them on things that are not what the campaign of the front runner knows is a weakness. And for every little syllable that you say about the front runner, you better be saying a lot basier sentences and paragraphs about the front runner's enemies. That's the job of the silver surfer. Now, we saw a few of these play out in the last presidential primary on on, on the Democratic side. You could say that the lane for the Silver Surfer was Andrew Yang. And if he would have been more of a ferocious campaigner, maybe he would be part of the Biden administration. Kamala Harris eventually got the plum spot as vice president but really attacked Biden at the very, very beginning. Now, bears noting that she didn't attack him much after that. And that allowed there to be enough healing where the demographic marriage of the Biden coalition came together for Kamala. There was one name that I forgot, though. Somebody that was a part of the Obama administration seemed to have a bright future in democratic politics and has since been banished to the nether realm because of how hard he went after Joe Biden. And that is Julian Castro. When's the last time you heard Julian Castro's name? Probably, uh, probably a while, unless you still follow him on Twitter for some reason. When I really had to put my my thought to it, who actually amongst Joe Biden's fellow candidates did the best job at aiding Biden's eventual victory? Well, two names come up. Pete Buttigieg, who obviously dropped out at the exact right moment and was rewarded with a Department of Transportation slot. And Elizabeth Warren. Because again, if you're talking about attacking the enemies 
of the front runner. Nobody attacked Bernie Sanders more and more effectively, considering the fact that for Bernie to win, he needed Elizabeth Warren voters than the Massachusetts senator. Let's remember the embarrassingly staged hot mic, the leaked story about how Bernie Sanders had told her that a woman couldn't be president. And then the real knife in the back. When all the centrists in the race formed up like Voltron right before Super Tuesday, Elizabeth Warren refused to drop out. You would think that if Elizabeth Warren really wanted Bernie Sanders to have a shot at the presidency, that would have been the move considering where their voters lay on the political spectrum. She did not. And Elizabeth Warren is still very much in favor in the Democratic Party. Now, Bernie Sanders is too, but that's because post-pandemic, he basically just said, all right, I'm not going to Hillary Clinton you while there's a gigantic world-changing disease happening. But let's get back to Vivek. Because Vivek is unquestionably the silver surfer candidate in this primary. He is orbiting Trump. He is fighting Trump's enemies. He is highlighting the talking points that Donald Trump can only say so often, but giving it credence because it's coming from somebody that is theoretically running against him. Vivek Ramaswamy was the first person to leap to Donald Trump's defense after the Alvin Bragg indictment, saying that every other candidate in the race should similarly be as vocal as Ramaswamy in what an absolute travesty of justice this was. And when Ramaswamy announced that he was going to have a morning press conference out front of the courthouse of Donald Trump's arraignment, you would think that there were similar machinations there. He would decry it as an absolute travesty. He would highlight the fact, as he did on the Sunday shows, that he had filed a FOIA request to find out what, if any, communication Joe Biden had with Merrick Garland or special investigator Jack Smith. But then the rumors, the rumors start popping around that this might be more of an announcement. And indeed, we could get our first suspension of a campaign. Possibly, possibly, possibly. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. He gets up in front of his podium. Side note, he had a YouTube that he had listed on his Twitter saying that he was going to live stream it from his channel. He didn't. Uh, uh, that, <laughs> that stream never went live. Fox News did carry it. There seemed to be a, a little bit of confusion. I believe Laura Loomer who may or may not be working for Vivek Ramaswamy, but was wearing a Donald Trump did nothing wrong t-shirt, tried to hand Vivek a bullhorn saying that nobody could hear him. Seems like everybody could hear him. Anyway, Vivek makes two announcements. And he says, my first announcement is the FOIA thing that he already announced. 
Then he leads up to his second announcement. That brings me to my second announcement that I'm going to make today. This is an announcement of a letter that my campaign has sent to every other campaign in this race. To Mike Pence, to Nikki Haley, to Larry Elder, to RFK Jr., to Marianne Williamson, to Doug Bugram, Burgum, to Perry Johnson, to Chris Christie, to Ron DeSantis, the governor of the state where we are today, who by any measure is not here today in his own state, I will tell you that we have sent this letter, and I'm happy to announce, this is my commitment on January 20th, 2025, if I'm elected the next U.S. president, to pardon Donald J. Trump for these offenses in this federal case. And I have challenged, I have demanded that every other candidate in this race either sign this commitment to pardon on January 20th, 2025, or else to explain why they are not. And I will tell you something, it's gonna be difficult for those other candidates to sign this letter. The reason it's gonna be difficult for them is the same reason it's difficult for me. The donor class has been calling every Republican candidate and telling us to stay away from this, not to touch it from a 10-foot pole. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I thought something interesting was going to happen. He had already announced that he was going to pardon Trump. I guess the, the letter is new news, theoretically, although I don't know at exactly what speed any of the other campaigns almost all of which are polling ahead of Vivek Ramaswamy. And that's not saying much because most of the candidates that he listed there are under 3%. I don't know. I don't know exactly how high on the priority list they're going to put responding to Vivek Ramaswamy's letter. But it does give us a chance to update our failed candidate draft. So reminder, me and Evan Scrimshaw, each picked three candidates. The goal is by the time that they are all out, who has the least amount of days in the race? So we are trying to pick candidates that will flame out as fast as possible. I got to tell you, if Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out, Evan might have won it right here. This is this is a an absolute, that would have been an amazing pull by Evan. But let's go through his team. He had Asia Hutchinson, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis. Asia Hutchinson has been in for 72 days. Vivek has been in for 112 days. And Ron DeSantis has been in for 20 days. When you add up their duration, he is at 204 days currently. All of my candidates are also in the race. Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. Mike Pence has been in for six days. Nikki Haley's been in for 119 days, and Tim Scott's been in for 22 days. That means that if everybody dropped out at the same time, which is not going to happen, I would win because my candidates only have 147 days in the race. This does make me a little skittish, though. I gotta say. Because whether or not Vivek Ramaswamy dropped out today, 
the likelihood that he is going to drop out sooner rather than later is undeniable. Because then there's the question of what he would do with that newfound MAGA clout. Aside from just being on television all the time, which is what Donald Trump would prefer all of his allies did, mostly because Donald Trump watches a lot of television and he wants to see people that are articulate talk about him. The rumor going around, and again, totally unsubstantiated, but you listen to this show so you can be on the cutting edge of some scuttlebutt, is that he would run for Senate in Ohio. Now, this would be a truly transformative moment in American political history. That Ohio, the true bellwether state, so goes Ohio, so goes the nation, would elect J.D. Vance and Vivek Ramaswamy to their two senatorial seats. Now, look, whoever wins the Republican nomination to run in Ohio has got a much tougher test than J.D. Vance did last year. That's because whoever is the Republican nominee has got to beat Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is an incumbent. And yes, Ohio has gotten redder in the six years since he last won a race. But still, incumbency matters. That Republican primary looks to be a bruising one. Matt Dolan, who ran last year, state senator, Northeast Ohio, family owns the Cleveland Guardians baseball team. He is not going to be in the running for a Trump primary. He has tried to distance himself a little bit. Frank LaRose, Ohio Secretary of State, has been trying to, uh, uh, you know, nudge his way into to MAGA world. Congressman Warren Davis of Troy, he's another one in the race. But the person for whom Donald Trump has talked the most about is Bernie Moreno. He is a Cleveland businessman. He's sold cars. He's in the blockchain business. But he is now in this race. And if I were Bernie Moreno, I would not like hearing rumors like these that that Vivek Ramaswamy is going to drop out and could possibly be looking at a run for Senate. Now, from the Vivek point of view, if you really, really, really want to go to D.C., and a lot of these kinds of presidential candidates don't, you know, they want to raise their profile, but like going from nobody could pronounce your last name to the Senate is pretty impressive if he could pull it off. He is well-liked, it seems like, at least in the online side, but he doesn't particularly have a gigantic, at least political history in Ohio. Anyway, we have no idea if that's true. That is just the rumor. And so far, my failed candidate fantasy team remains alive. This is your update brought to you by 
TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get two bonus episodes each and every week by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, signing up at the $3 level. If you think it would be worth it to buy me a coffee while I sat in your car and talked to you for twice the amount that I do on this show, well, come on. It's easy peasy. Lemon squeeze. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Bonus content at the $3 level. And buy FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. This week on the Substack, I discussed in a little bit more in-depth the idea of Tucker Carlson on Twitter, specifically the dialogue about whether or not the view count on his first two Twitter videos, which are one of them's in the, the 120 million range, the other is in the 60 million range, whether or not that matters or the concept of it being more than the audience that watched him on Fox News. My take, Carlson on Twitter is already a success, even if the numbers on Twitter are totally cooked. Because guess what? The numbers on his Fox show were cooked too. Read all about it. Freepoliticalnewsletter.com Let's get to your stories. The GOP Freedom Caucus. Well, turns out they were really upset about that (laughs) bipartisan debt ceiling deal. They have been staging a protest involving approximately a dozen Republicans halting House business in protest of Kevin McCarthy's leadership. As a result, votes on a pair of pro-gas stove bills important to GOP activists couldn't be taken. In response, McCarthy has held a meeting with the dissenting lawmakers to attempt to resolve the impasse and restart stalled priorities. He pledged more meetings with the holdouts and a focus on reducing federal spending in the future. Also, apparently in those uh, meetings, there were a few F-bombs dropped. Despite this, McCarthy acknowledged the possibility of similar obstacles in the future, where members of his own party may oppose routine procedural votes that prevent the House from addressing various GOP priorities. This was indicated by the failure of a procedural rule vote, which was the first such failure in two decades. Representative Matt Gaetz warned that they might be back into the same situation the following week, but Gaetz also mentioned that there's an agreement from McCarthy to further investigate spending in various federal boards, commissions, and other entities that could be reduced to save money. The most significant message from the holdouts was their demand for consistent progress from McCarthy and the leadership team on spending priorities each week. They threatened that without such progress, the floor will stop, the functions will stop. That was a quote from Representative Matt Rosendale. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. Is this kind of revolt something that you can tolerate if you're Kevin McCarthy? You got the debt ceiling deal done. You don't have a full-scale rebellion that would actually imperil your speakership. So, yeah, 11 people are being a little wild about it. Is that the worst thing in the world? I don't think so. Mostly because nobody is paying attention to this story outside of the D.C. press. And now you. The political organization No Labels is considering a third-party presidential bid. That's not news. But it is news that the No Labels Coalition is a 
currently now drawing lines on who would have to be the candidates if they were to launch a third party push. And apparently, if Ron DeSantis is the nominee, they won't. No labels stated that they will make their decisions based on data rather than subjective judgments of party leaders, and it's examining voter attitudes to inform its approach. The recent bipartisan debt ceiling deal, which was well-received by no labels, was heavily criticized by DeSantis. No labels' future plans includes polling to gauge potential support for an independent presidential ticket and preparing to gain ballot access in key states. The group is also drafting its common sense policy agenda and plans to hold a convention in April in Dallas, Texas. Boy, I might have to drive up I-35 for that. That may be a crucial decision point for the organization. Despite uncertainty around its potential nominee, the the organization is laying the groundwork for a presidential bid. The group aims to provide a moderate and independent option akin to Ross Perot's 92 campaign and insists its potential candidate would appeal to voters across party lines. It's also preparing to release its policy agenda, focusing on broad areas of consensus like immigration and border security, while avoiding contentious issues such as abortion, at least initially. However, the group acknowledges that the challenge of overcoming public perception and skepticism about the the viability of an independent ticket is paramount. And that's probably why they're going to be careful about it. I'm of two minds when it comes to no labels. Number one, I kind of love it because anytime that there is a lot of money behind a third party push and it just infuriates the two parties that have every advantage, including incumbency, money, and ballot access, and, and people jump up and down and scream that this is unfair and this is, oh, it's the worst. Oh, no. I love it. Like, honestly, if, you're, if you are a Republican or a Democrat, what would you like? More money? More history? More connection with your voting base? Like, we're not going to have a third-party winner. And if we do have a third-party winner, then that is an indictment for the leadership of both parties to immediately get a pint of ice cream, crawl into bed, and never leave. Let's get into the economy a little bit. The consumer price index rose 4% in the last 12 months through May, while the measure that strips out food and gas prices rose 5.3%, this from the Labor Department. That means that inflation has decelerated but remains uncomfortably high for economic policymakers, the latest sign that the problem is not yet over. Overall CPI cooled from the 4.9% increase in the 12 months through April, but May's annual figure is a sharp decline from the peak 9% registered in June of 2022. Again, that means that the rise is decelerating, not inflation. The way this is worded often makes it seem that we are getting less inflation from where we were. No, 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 no. We're just going up slower, if that makes sense. On a monthly basis, core inflation shows no sign of cooling, a troubling development for policymakers. It rose 0.4, matching the pace of the previous two months. Overall inflation, however, rose a mild 0.1%, 
slowing from the 0.4% increase in April. The major factor in pulling everything down was energy prices, with a 5.6% decline in gasoline prices in May. Gasoline is now down 17 point, or sorry, 19.7% from a year earlier. Rent continued to rise rapidly at 0.5% in May and 8.7% on a yearly basis. Hachi machi. However, economists believe that the number is set to fade in the coming months as private sector indicators suggest falling rent growth. So now all eyes are on the Federal Reserve. They begin a two-day policy meeting this week at which it's expected to leave interest rates unchanged for the first time in 15 months. But will they? And when they do, how do we see inflation react to it? These are the questions that are the prelude to whether or not we are going to be in a recession by the end of this year. And if we are, how long that recession lasts into the meat of our presidential campaign. And that is your update. Head on over to freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Sign up for that. Head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com and get on our bonus content train. Woo woo. Three bucks. Double your episodes. See you there. Now back to the show. But it's a big moment because nothing like this or even close to this has ever happened before. The prosecution by an opposing administration of a former president. And that in itself is caused to to think seriously about whether this indictment should have been brought. On balance, I think people who read the indictment and take it seriously will think, well, they probably had no choice but to do it, but that doesn't mean there wasn't unequal treatment, and that doesn't mean that the divisive effect of having this former president who still enjoys such wide popularity among Republican voters um, well, not that, uh, should have been prosecuted. That is a very curmudgeonly Brit Hume on... Fox News this morning. I really love an older Brit Hume who really is is very clearly out of F's to give. <laughs> he is he is more call it as I see it than I have ever seen him in my my political understanding. And I think that this is a pretty well done analysis of the Trump documents thing. You can understand that in another context, he would not have caught these charges. You can also understand that if this is true, what's in the indictment, which we have no reason to believe that it's not, and Trump is not particularly denying the facts of the indictment, that you can say, oh my God, was this insanely sloppy. 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 That's that's what, to me, has remained the more I have sat with the facts of this indictment. Because I want to get into something that is talked about a lot on the Republican side since this news dropped. And that is the two-tiered justice system. Joe Biden had documents in his garage. Mike Pence had documents. Hillary Clinton had an email, sir. All right, let's take those first two. We'll we'll save Clinton for last. It 
is wrong that Mike Pence and Joe Biden had those documents. They were vice presidents. They did not have the right to have those documents. And if the DOJ was as serious about these documents as they often you know, uh, uh, use their talking points as, these are the nation's greatest secrets, then yeah, trying to bring some kind of charge against those folks would be appropriate if what you wanted to do was really change the culture. But we don't really want to change the culture. The National Records Archive and the uh, FBI and DOJ they mostly just want these problems to go away because it seems like there is an extraordinarily permissive culture of allowing these documents outside of the purview of the federal government. Otherwise, we wouldn't find them in Joe Biden's garage. But there's a very important part of this that you can't lose sight of. And that is when Pence and Biden were found to have these documents, they gave them back. Donald Trump, again, if we are to believe this indictment is true, did not. and Didn't particularly have a lot of great reasons why, except to say, I should have them. He was using them to effectively impress his friends. You know? And I guess, look, the guy lives at golf courses. You want to know who shows up at golf courses? Powerful, rich, usually white, men. And when powerful, rich, usually white men get together, they often talk about the cool stuff they did. And, you know, they can all talk about the private jets. They can talk about the money they made. They can talk about their mistresses. They can talk about all that stuff. But if Donald Trump has a classified plan of how we would attack China or in the discussion of the pullout of Afghanistan, as is alleged in this indictment, at least when you put the pieces together, he can show somebody, oh, look, by the way, you know, it looks like Biden's really screwing up because where they're pulling out stuff, we already knew that this was definitely. That's a thing that nobody else can have. And based on my understanding of this, that's the reason why he was keeping those documents. Beyond just believing that nobody else gives them back, why am I the one who has to give them back? He wanted them to show off. And in at least two versions of that process, there was enough evidence, including a recording, that is going to be used against him. That's the difference. Donald Trump was sloppier. And that's just with the Bidens and the Pences of the world. Let's talk about the Clintons. Because Hillary Clinton, if we're talking about State secrets are nation's most important secrets. These aren't even vetted in process, the ones that were on her private email server. No, if you hacked a private email server, you could essentially have a one-stop shop 
feed drip of American intelligence. That's pretty bad. Hillary Clinton got away with it. Why? Because she's the opposite of sloppy. Because when they knew that they were caught with their hand in the cookie jar, the Clintons covered up their tracks. They stuck together. They gave the most plausible explanation for what happened. And then they denied, 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 denied until it went away. Should the federal law enforcement agencies made more of an effort to poke through that defense? Was there enough evidence there to show that their defense was something that should be looked into more? That's up to you to decide. And I do think that you can make an argument to say, if Donald Trump was that disciplined, maybe the federal government would have went further to crack that nut. But we're never going to know because Donald Trump isn't that disciplined. And instead, we have a part of this indictment where Donald Trump is asking one of his lawyers to destroy evidence by saying Clinton's lawyer did it. I mean, do we understand the difference here in terms of discipline? Like, even if we are looking at cover-ups, even if we are looking at just presenting your best face forward, that's the difference here. Yes, you could say that there is a different standard, but I don't think in any way, after reading this indictment, can you say that Donald Trump was anything other than absolutely hilariously sloppy? And if you're pinning your hopes on Donald Trump fundamentally reshaping the federal government when he is walking in to an extremely hostile situation and he does not have the wherewithal to get his own ducks in a row, well, I don't think it speaks super well for his effectiveness if you are a Republican primary voter. But, We will see if that matters. Let's move on here. When is this trial actually going to take place? I was told by a friend of mine over the weekend that federal courts are often referred to as rocket dockets because they go so fast. Well, according to former House Chief Counsel in the 1998 impeachment of President Bill Clinton, Julian Epstein, He doesn't think it's going to happen until at least 2024 at the earliest and most likely after the presidential election. Now, the indictment against Trump consists of 37 counts, 31 of which are tied to separate classified documents that the government alleges he possessed unlawfully. Those documents related to national defense, which is supposedly not entitled to be kept by Trump. Other counts relate to obstructing justice for allegedly hiding those records. The classified nature of those documents brings the Classified Information Procedures Act into play, establishing rules for introducing redacted sensitive information in the trial. This procedure could potentially prolong the trial as the defense attorneys will attempt to quote-unquote gray mail the government by forcing it to disclose as much information as possible to pressure prosecutors to drop the charges. 
This, by the way, is all according to Mark Caputo of The Messenger. The trial procedure itself is expected to be drawn out. Several experts agreeing that it's unlikely the trial would commence before November 2024. And Trump's legal team, which, by the way, is still unsettled, will need to gain security clearance to review the classified documents, adding to the time the process will take. That's before we get to the judge, Eileen Cannon, a Trump nominee who has previously made rulings in Trump's favor. Those rulings were on this document case. This is back in September. She's the one who stopped the searching by the FBI of the 11,000 government records and granted an arbiter known as a special master broad powers that extended beyond filtering materials that were potentially subject to attorney-client privilege. Now, that ruling was overturned. But still, now Eileen Cannon is running this particular case. Which brings me to the final point of this episode. What happens when none of this matters as much as people think it does? It's obviously historic. But if none of these cases are heard before the election, then we essentially have a return to the meta that we have had before. Unless Donald Trump falters in the primary, which at this point it looks unlikely, we're going to have to keep an eye on the polls over the next two weeks as the facts of this indictment kind of settle in. Britt Hume seems to think it might have more of an effect than the New York indictment did. But this was supposed to be the harshest of the three investigations that Donald Trump faced. Federal charges. And, again, if the indictment has him dead to rights, he doesn't even deny that he had the documents that the government says he shouldn't have had. So, if you factor in the fact that he's got a friendly judge on that case, whether or not the Georgia thing happened, is this the mother of all? I'd like to see old Donnie Trump wriggle out of this one. Trump wriggles out easy. Odd, nevertheless. I don't feel like people are prepared for that possibility. When in reality, they should. I mean, it's been the rule, not the exception. Donald Trump is, as of now the front runner for the Republican nomination. He may or may not face any of these trials before the general election next November. And if he wins, he will be able to pardon himself from the federal crimes for sure. That is a reality. And I want you, the PX3 listeners, to understand that as a reality. Because we are not every other show that is going to talk to you. We are not every other hysterical, screaming, talking head about how this is the biggest, most important thing on the planet. No, 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 no. We're going to prepare ourselves because we are about to enter into the dark, dark woods of this election. Where... Everybody will say any and everything to get their candidate over the line. 
And I want to be that lighthouse in the misty bay for you. I want you to know that there is dry land. Whether you like it or not, you do need to understand the possibility that what is happening today, regardless of how exciting, terrifying, dystopic you might find it, may very well not matter at all. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. You can email the program, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you'd like to find the show on Twitter, it's px3tweets. If you'd like to find me, it is Justin R. Young. You can see me live on the internet, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at px3live.com. Letter P, letter X, number three, live. Those newsletters that I mentioned during the show, you can get them at px3newsletter.com. Get it into your inbox. Just read it on Substack. Get the Substack app. It just beams it right into your app. It's actually pretty cool. And you can share this podcast with your friends, family and clergy, px3podcast.com. Obviously, we are supported by you guys, the listeners. If this kind of stuff makes you want to chuck me a $5 bill. You can do so on a one-time basis. PayPal.me slash payjury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send anything you'd like to my P.O. Box. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, the only place you can get our bonus content is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, Matthew T., El Basso, John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafe DB Level, Amanda, EO Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vogue Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris Arzlani, and Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terror, and Molly's Dashing Debut. Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Gacy, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves Frank, got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Gen A, L, D, L, D, L, D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you would like your name on the show. It is just that simple. Head on over there, takepoliticsseriously.com. We're going to have more on this in our Friday episode. We're going to see if we can nail down a guest, uh, but most likely we will be looking at how this is shaking out with the other candidates. We're going to go candidate by candidate and see how they're handling it. And hopefully we'll have some kind of snap polls by then. But till then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this... This is the only show that dares discuss 
you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.